Today I want to talk to you about raising your expectations. Raise them. Take your expectations, whatever they are, up a notch or two or 500. Raise your expectations. And uh, I have learned that people tend to meet their own expectations. They live to the expectation that they have for themselves. And so I want to give you four keys today in your outline. If you'll take those out, turn on your apps, pull out your outlines. I want to give you four keys to raising your expectations today. We're going to jump right in to the outline immediately. So if you're taking notes, number one, the first thing is to develop a bigger vision. Develop a bigger vision for your life, all of your life. I know a lot of people, they have vision when it comes to their career. Here's my vision for my career. Here's the dream for my job. Here's the one-year plan, the two-year plan, the five-year, the ten-year. That's if they have a vision at all. They'll have a vision for their business. But where people often miss the mark is they have zero vision for their spiritual growth. Where do you want to be with God in one year? Where do you want to be in five years? I I never thought about it. And so just like we would develop a vision for our business, more importantly, we need to have a vision for our spiritual growth, a vision for our marriage. What do you want your marriage to look like in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now? For me, uh, my marriage, my wife and I, this March 7th, will be married 22 years. God is good. We got married when we were four, and so it's been rocking ever since. But my vision for my marriage when we were dating is the same vision for my marriage as it is today. It has not changed. What's your vision for being a daddy or a mommy? What is your vision for your life? And so if I'm going to raise the expectations in my life, because God built you for a purpose He has a vision for your life. A lot of times we chase our own vision and never really stop to think about, but wait, is this God's vision for my life? Is this what God wants for me? And so if we're going to raise the bar of expectation in our life, we need to raise the bar of vision, be a visionary in our lives. A vision is simply a picture, right? It's a picture of the future. This is what I want my future to look like. We get a vision and we have retirement plans. Well, this is what I hope to have in the bank when I retire. This is where I hope to be financially. This is where I want my business to be financially. It's a picture. It's a picture that actually doesn't exist physically today, but it exists mentally or in our hearts today. And that picture that you have, it shapes your life. It shapes the direction of your life. The vision is a target for your life. And if you don't have vision, you don't have a target for your life. When I was coaching basketball with our high school girls team, uh, before my daughter went to play college, I had a vision for the team. And I would point to the banners on the wall. I would keep pointing to those banners. I'd say, hey, You see that the girls' basketball program at this school has been really bad in the past. 
There's pathetic, and then there's worse than that. It was worse than that. They have not won even a region championship since 1980. And I would tell our girls, that's our first goal. Our first goal is the region championship. And for these girls, they work towards that vision, that picture. And not only did they win it once, but while my daughter was there, they won it four years in a row. That's a vision, a picture of the future that gives you something to work toward. I know a lot of people, they have a vision and they print it out and they stick it on their walls. They stick it in prominent places. I want to see that all the time because the more I see it, the more I'm headed towards my vision, the more I want to live it out. So your vision, it defines your mission. It tells you what your mission is, what you're willing to live for, what you're willing to die for, right? What, what you are going to do in this world. And so your vision it defines your mission. One thing I never want to be accused of, well, there's actually a lot of things I don't ever want to be accused of, but one thing I never want to be accused of is too small a vision. I'd rather be like, that guy is crazy. I mean, he's got so much vision. I have big vision for my life, big vision for my family, big vision as a daddy, big vision as a husband, big vision. You know what my smallest vision is in my life? It's about future finances. That's like the, that, to me, that's on the back burner. Number one is my vision for my relationship with God. My vision for my relationship with my wife as a daddy. My vision for this church and our ministry and making an impact for God. Those are my priorities. That's my vision for life. I remember my first Sunday in 2010. Listen, July 25th, 2010, was my first Sunday and I stood on this stage and I laid out the vision for the church. And this July 25th is our 10 year anniversary. I can't believe 10 years and we're gonna celebrate, you know, we're gonna have some fun on July 25th or somewhere in that time. I, I say it's such a good time. We're not gonna celebrate once. We're gonna celebrate the 10 year anniversary for like maybe 10 years, I don't know, but we're gonna have a lot of fun with it. But I remember standing on this stage and there's 204 total people at church. That included kids, that included babies. We were trying to find people to count. I think we counted pilots on the runway. We were like, count them. They're on the runway, they're within striking distance, count them. 204 people. And so if you take kids and teens and they're back in their rooms, in here, you know, there's like 120, 125 people. And I stood on this stage and I said, I have a vision for the church. I want to reach the lost. I want to take people to heaven with me. I want to populate heaven. I want to take more people to heaven with me. When they die, they go to heaven. And while they live, they have less hell on earth. That's my goal, right? That when people die, they go to heaven. And while people, they, they live, they, they, don't, they don't have to live through hell. They find the peace, the joy, the hope of God. And they live in that peace and hope and, and joy. And I stood on this stage and I said, I'm believing that one day this church will have 1,500 people in it every single weekend. And I remember saying those words in my mind and it gave me a picture. 1,500 is a picture. People say, is that what God told you? No, that's what, I just came up with that. Isn't that amazing? I just on my own came up with 1,500 people. I had no idea that we would be running 1,500 people within like the first four years. No clue. 
And so when that happened, I said, okay, I need a new vision now. I need to expand my vision, stretch my vision. And we hit that one so fast that I said, here's our new goal. Our new goal is that we will be a church of 10,000 people every single weekend. That's the new goal. It's going to happen. It's a matter of time, but it will happen. That's the picture. 10,000 people. And guess what? When we hit 10,000, God's going to expand my vision again. And he's going to say, 10,000, Travis, I want you to make Joel Osteen look like he doesn't know what he's doing. And that'll be the next vision. (laughs) God didn't give me the numbers. I made them up. I made them up because it gives us a target. It gives us something to work for. The truth is, if there's one person that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I've got work to do, and the church needs to be one person bigger. I've had people in the past ask me, how big do you want the church to be? That's not even a question for me. That's a question for God. All I'm supposed to do is reach people for God, share the love, share the message, share the truth, share the hope. It's God's decision on how big any church is or how big any church isn't. But again, if there's one person who doesn't know Jesus Christ, the church needs to be bigger. Some people say, I've heard this throughout my years, 20-something years in ministry, well, I like a small church. Some people like a small church. If you like a small church, you might as well get up and walk out the door right now because this is not a small church. It will never be a small church. A small church isn't even a biblical church. Do you know in the book of Acts, the first church after Jesus died and rose again, the first church is all described through the book of Acts. It said they met met in the temple courts every week, which facilitated 50,000 people at a time. 50,000, and then they met in homes daily. So here's the goal. We wanna grow bigger and smaller at the same time. We wanna be bigger in our weekend celebration services, but we wanna be smaller in our intimacy and our relationships and our connections. Why would people say, I like a small church? Why would they say that? Because they want relationships. They feel like, man, if it's too big, I just get lost in the mix and lost in the shuffle. I've had people in the past say, man, I've been coming to the church for six months and I don't know anybody. Can I respectfully ask you a question? Whose fault is that? We have small groups and Bible studies all throughout the week. I don't expect you're going to meet a lot of people sitting here on Sunday morning listening to the worship for 30 minutes and listening to me for 30 minutes. You know, say, turn and shake hands with 500 people and say, hi, you're not going to meet in a deep relationship, but if you come to our small groups, if you come to our Bible studies, if you come to our women's groups, if you come to our men's groups, if you come to our young adult ministry, the more you get involved, the more connected you'll be. And then there's some of you, you don't, you don't like people. You just want to come sit here and then leave. Anybody like that at all? Liars. Oh, see, look, there's a few in the front row. That's why you're in the front, just avoiding everybody, right? And so our goal is that we grow bigger and we grow smaller at the same time. But I love this verse in Ephesians 3.20. When it comes to your vision, you got to get God involved with your vision. Don't develop a vision based on what you think that you can do. Develop your vision based on what you think God can do. 
If you think you can do it, it's not big enough. If you think you can fulfill your vision without God, there needs to be a part of this in your life that you go, that there is no way I can accomplish what is in my heart without the supernatural, miraculous power of Jesus Christ. That's big vision. I need you, God, in this. I need you to be all over this. And the good news is we serve a God that does exactly that. In Ephesians 3.20, let's read this verse out loud together. Ephesians 3.20, it says, God can do anything you know. We're going to read this out loud. Did I already say that? I felt like I said that. Let's try it again. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever imagine or guess or request in your wildest dreams. God is able, another translation said, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, more than anything we could ask or imagine. God can do anything you know, far more than you could ever request or guess or ask or, God, will you this? He said, not only will I that, but I can do more than that. That's the God that we serve. So when it comes to our vision, remember... We serve in Ephesians 3.20 God, which means we need to have an Ephesians 3.20 vision for our life. All throughout the Bible, people had big vision. Abraham had a vision to be the father of a great nation. Moses had a vision to once and for all set his people free from slavery. Joseph had a vision to save the nation. Nehemiah had a vision to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Solomon had a vision to build the first permanent church temple before Solomon it was always mobile set up tear down set up tear down and he fulfilled that vision but Daniel David the apostle Paul they were all people of vision God wants us to have big vision you know you can't build anything without vision you can't build a business you can't build a marriage you can't build a family you cannot build your children without vision so God I'm going to raise my expectations and I am going to have you help me with casting a vision, developing a vision for my life. Let's look at the second thing. If I'm going to raise my expectations, I have to increase my faith. Somebody say faith. I got to grow in the area of faith. Increase my faith. I need more faith in my life. Faith and vision are two different things. I know they seem like the same thing at first glance. Well, isn't vision and faith the same concept? They're different concepts. Vision is the idea. It's the dream. It's the thought. It's the faith that gives the thought legs and it puts the thought into action. That's faith. That's why James, he said, faith without works is what? Dead. Faith without works is dead. You can't have faith if you don't have action. There's no faith at all without including works. So faith is putting my vision into mission. That's faith. I'm taking a leap of faith, right? That I said, man, this is the dream. Now I'm stepping out to fulfill that dream. I wanted to start this business and I've been wanting to start it for years and years and years. And now finally, I'm gonna step out and take this step of faith. When I was younger, I used to like to uh, go cliff jumping. Has anybody ever done that? Cliff jump off the side of like a cliff into the water? 
Raise your hand if you've done that. So look, it's all the white people. It's like a stupid white thing to do. You know, it's like one of those really dumb white things to do. And so you go cliff jumping and you, and you know, I learned a lot about cliff. There's a lot of life application tools and keys that I learned about cliff jumping. One thing I learned is that the higher you go, the scarier it is, right? And it's the same, I go preach in Switzerland every summer. I know it sucks, but somebody has to suffer for Jesus and answer the call. And when we go, we go to Lake Zurich and it has all these high dives. It has a 10 foot one, a 20 foot one, a 30 foot one. And the 10 foot one, you just get, it's like no big deal. We took a friend a few years ago and she's like, oh, I'm going off the tall one. And she gets up on top of that 30 foot one. It was a lot harder, a lot scarier. And another thing I learned about cliff jumping is the longer you stand at the edge looking down, the less likely you are to jump. You think you're going to talk yourself into it, but you end up talking yourself out of it. And this is what this girl did on this high platform. She stood up there, I'm going to jump. And her courage, it went to complete complete disaster and she stood up there for an hour and finally she came down off the ladder like yeah I'm not gonna do it right and it's the same with the business it's the same with the dream that God has given us the longer I stand at the edge looking at it the less likely I am to jump there's a lot of people who've had an idea they've had a vision a dream for their life for years and years and years and years but they're still standing on the edge terrified There is some scare to it. There is some fear to it. Especially think of it in terms of business. I want to start my own company, but I'm here now and this one pays my bills. This one puts food. How do I leave this and go to this? It's called faith. Not stupidity. A calculated, prayed up, risk-taking faith. I'm not asking anybody today to go resign tomorrow without a plan. But it is a calculated, risk-taking, prayed-up faith. Every miracle I've ever experienced in my life started with a step of faith. I want to say it again because honestly I could say this and close in prayer because this is what I'm trying to say in one sentence. Every miracle, every miracle I have ever experienced in my life started with a step of faith. Some of you in here are one step of faith away from watching God do a miracle in your life. Do you remember when Peter walked on water? And it was about 4 a.m., it was dark, the disciples are out on a boat, and Jesus comes down the mountain looking for his disciples, and says, oh man, they're out in the water. Jesus starts walking on the water out to them, And Peter and the disciples are freaking out like, yo, what is that coming at us? Must be a ghost. And Jesus is, nah, man, it's me, Pete. And Pete's like, if it's you, tell me to walk on water too. So Jesus says, walk on water too. So now what are you going to do? You've been walking with God, talking with God. He's been doing the miraculous, healing the sick, healing the blind, healing the deaf, raised Lazarus from the dead. This is God in a bod. He's telling me to walk on water. Am I going to stay in the boat? Am I going to walk on water? And it takes faith. And the Bible says he gets out the boat and he starts to walk on water. And then he notices 
the waves and the wind. And he starts to panic and fear sinks in and he sinks. Jesus helps him up and says, yo, why do you have such little faith, Peter? Why do you have such little faith? In other words, anytime I take my life off of Jesus Christ, my life is going to sink. I'm walking, not really on water. I'm walking on the Word of God. When I take a step of faith out of the natural into the supernatural, that's where the miracles happen. Some of us want a miracle. There ain't no way in hell we're getting out the boat. You'll never experience a miracle until you get out the boat. It's in the faith step where the supernatural happens. God shows up in the faith step. And so God, develop our faith, grow our faith, increase my faith. God, I want to experience the miracles of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God. How do I grow my faith? Faith is like a muscle. The more you use it, the more it grows. The more you use it, the more it grows. Right? Some of you, you go to the gym all the time. We know that. You look like you do. Some of you, no offense, you look like you don't. (laughs) The more you go, just like church, the more you grow. Right? And so the more I use that muscle, the more that muscle grows. The same is true with faith. The more I use the gift of faith, the more the gift of faith grows. There's people in this church that give 10% of their income back to the Lord. It's called a tithe. I teach on it three or four times a year. This is not a teaching, so I'm going to still do it in the future. Don't hold me to this. But I just want to say, there's people that tithe. They say, you know what? I understand the Word of God, and I'm supposed to tithe. I give 10% of everything I make back to God. And then there's people that don't. There's people that kind of do. And I've met some people that say, listen, if I could just get this deal to close, then I'll tithe. If I could just get this one deal, if I could just get this paid off, then I'll start tithing. It, It doesn't work like that. Faith doesn't work like that. Faith says, God, I'm going to do what you've asked me to do. And then, and then God brings you 28 more deals. Because I did what God wants me to do. Now God opens the floodgates of heaven. I'm sitting there going, God, if you bless me, then I'll do it. God, if you give me this, then I'll do it. God, and God said, I ain't giving you nothing. That's not the way this works, baby boy. you got to take the step of faith and then watch me throw open the floodgates of heaven. And I can tell you this, every person in this building that tithes, they understand that and they've witnessed that in their lives or they wouldn't keep tithing, right? They wouldn't keep doing it. It's like we get to the Red Sea and we go, oh God, part the sea and I'll go across. And he goes, it doesn't work like that. Start walking and then I'll part the sea. But we want the miracles of God and the comforts of man at the same time. It doesn't work like that. This is a long time ago, but before I, before I started here, I worked for a church and helped start that church. And we were there, my wife and I, and we had our babies there. I mean, we didn't have them at the church, but like we 
they were born while we were at the church. And my oldest, who's now a freshman in college, she was nine. My son, Josiah, was six. And my youngest was two weeks old, two weeks old, two weeks. We helped start this church. We were there two and a, 12 and a half years. It grew to 6,000 people every weekend. It grew just like our church is growing here. And I remember around year 12, God started dealing with me and Natalie separately that it was time to resign. Time to resign. I had no problems resigning, but I loved this place. It was everything I knew. I helped build it from nothing to what it was today. I knew so many people in this church, so many. You know, oftentimes your church family becomes closer than your blood family. And I knew so many people, and I was okay, but like I can still do that, God, but God, that you confirm this and make it so obvious. And he confirmed it again and again and again, and we were supposed to do it. And here was my problem. I said, God, before I step down, I'd like to know what I'm stepping toward. What do you need when you have a two-week-old baby? <laughs> Sleep. Money. You need money, right? You need insurance. Yeah? It's kind of a good thing, even though insurance sucks today. You still need it, right? And so, God, why would we step down? How am I going to pay for this little baby? How am I going to deal with all these doctor's appointments? How am I? And we start, our human logic and our human intellect, oftentimes, it gets in the way of faith, and it shuts our faith walk down. Because it doesn't make sense intellectually. God said, I didn't, I'm not going to answer all those questions. I asked you to do something. I was scared spitless. I don't even know why that term is real, spitless. I was so, I was so afraid I couldn't even spit. <laughs> I mean, that's scared, you know. I had no idea. I didn't want to pastor a church. I didn't want to pastor a church at that point in my life. I had no idea that God wanted me to come and build a new church in this city and a church that I love even more than that church and a church that's got cooler people than even that church. I mean, go figure that out. You all know that this is the coolest church in the world because you guys are cool. It's a step of faith. It's a faith walk and God wants us to have more faith. Faith is putting our vision into the mission. How else do we grow our faith? It's not the more we use it, but it's also the opposite. If you don't use it, you lose it. How do I grow my faith? I listen to the word of God. The more word in my life, the more faith in my life. Look at Romans 10, 17. He says, so then, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. God's word will talk you into his plan for your life, right? It's like as a father, there's been moments in my life where I said, hey, would you like to do this with my child? You want to go on that roller coaster with me? No. No. I tell my son, there's a roller coaster at Disneyland. My oldest daughter's nuts. She'd go on a roller co coaster attached to an airplane like she's crazy like I am. Josiah's more like mama. You want to go on a roller coaster? Nope. You sure? I'm sure. Boy, you're going to love it if you'll just do it. And I just kind of encourage them and encourage them and encourage them. I know you can do it. I know you're going to love it. We finally, I get him to go on it. And then what does he want to do? 
He want to go on it again and again and again and again all day long. But the fear sometimes, it keeps us back and we just need some encouragement. And that's why the Bible says God's word, the Bible, it grows our faith. Listening to the word, hearing the word, studying the word, memorizing the word. More word, more faith. I got to move on. I have a lot more to say, but I'll have to come back to that next weekend. Number three, if you're going to raise your expectations, I must never lower my standards. Never lower my standards. Let me ask you this question. What are your standards anyway? If you could write down your standards for your life, would you even know what you're writing down? Your standards shape what you will and what you will not do in life. Your standards. They are the boundaries for your life. They are the perimeters for your life. They are your morals, your values, your expectations for your life, your standards. What are your standards? Raise your standard. Whatever your standard is, take that and raise it and never lower your standard. Most men and women of God, they, they have a standard called the Bible, right? That's our standard. What's your standard? The Bible. Okay, great. Your standard is the Bible, man of God, woman of God, right? That's your standard. It's supposed to be our standard. Here's the problem. This is what I see. People go out and get drunk, trashed, but they go, but the Bible's my standard. People lose their tempers, lose their cool. They rip people and they blow up on people. But the Bible is my standard. They curse like sailors and use profanity, but the Bible is my standard. They sleep around with whomever, whenever, but the Bible is my standard. They cheat on their spouses, but the Bible's my standard. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? And the problem is, the reason we do that is because... We're human. And in Romans 6 and 7, it talks about we have this battle against flesh and spirit going on in our lives every day. My flesh is Travis. What I want to do. My desires. My needs. Or at least what I think my needs are. And then the spirit is God in me that knows he has better for me. Did you know that God has a best for your life? Never settle for anything less than God's best. He has a best for your life. I see people settle all the time. And there is always a cost when you settle. There's always a price that you will pay when you lower your standards. Always. It might cost you your integrity. It might cost you your reputation. It might cost you your purity. It might cost you your life. It might cost you God's favor on your life. Do you remember the story of Jacob and Esau? In the book of Genesis, they were twin brothers. Esau was born first. He came out mama first. And so since he was born first, he was going to receive his father's inheritance, the blessing of God. And he wanted that because that meant you got not only his money, but you got his power, you got his livestock, you got his, it's called a birthright. You got the birthright being the firstborn. 
But one day, Esau's out in the fields. He comes into the house. He's hungry. He's starving. And Jacob, he's over there making some of Jacob's stew. He makes this stew. And Esau's like, yo, Jake, can I have some of that stew? And, he, and, and Jake goes, I'll tell you what, bro. I'll give you some of my to die for stew if you give me your birthright. How do you know that's a bad trade? That's a bad trade. But Esau was so hungry that he made the trade. Never trade a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of pain. That is a bad trade. And he made the deal. And we make this deal all the time. We trade God's best for our second best, third best, fourth best, fifth best. We engage in a moment of pleasure that oftentimes becomes a lifetime of pain. What are your standards? What are your moral standards? What are your values? How do you decide what you should and shouldn't do in life? What are your convictions? I love this verse. I want you to skip down with me to Romans 12 in verse 2. This is one of the first verses I memorized as a young man of God. It says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I'm going to read that part again. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, so here's the, the reality. The world has a pattern. Society, culture. Here's the pattern. But then the Word has a pattern. The Word of God. So you got the world's pattern, and you got the Word's pattern, and guess what? They never line up. The world's pattern never aligns with the Word's pattern. They're two radically different patterns. He says, don't conform into the worldly pattern. You're going to be tempted. You're going to be weak at times. You're going to want to cave. You're going to want to conform. Don't conform. Don't lower your standards. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our minds? Through the power of the Holy Bible. It teaches us what our standard for living is. It teaches us what is right, what is wrong, how to live, how to react, how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be a father, how to be a mother, how to be a child. There is nothing that the Bible does not teach us that we need to know about. And so there's this pattern in the world. The problem with the world's pattern is it's not built on a moral or a value system. It's built on what human flesh says is okay in that time frame. Let me give you an example. We have some patterns and standards in the United States of America. They are different from many cultures around the world. When I go to Europe with my family and we go to the lakes, I have to be careful taking my children to the lakes in Europe. Because in Europe, for some reason, a lot of times people forget to bring their swimsuits and they go swimming naked. And I know there's some weird pockets in the U.S. where you can do that. 
but it is not a national standard. Like, just show up and strip it off, yo. Be free in Jesus' name. <laughs> so who decides that's okay? Who decides that's not okay? The, the culture of the world and the society of the world's pattern is always changing. It's always going to change. It's going to say, this is right, now this is not right. Who decided? Who decided that it, it, the drinking age is 21 years old? It's not from the Bible. It's like, oh, here in Second Hallucinations, it says that you may drink alcohol at 21 years old. Just don't drink to get drunk, but other than that, you're good. It doesn't say that. Somebody, us, we decided that's probably the right age. When you go to Switzerland, they think Americans are out of their minds for letting their children leave the house at 18 years old. And listen, it makes a lot of sense. In Switzerland, it is the wealthiest nation on the planet. Has anybody been there? Raise your hand. You've been there? Okay, good. A good group of you. It is the wealthiest nation in the world, Switzerland. It, to me, is the most beautiful country in the world. I have never seen anything so spectacular as Switzerland. I'm going to preach there July 12th. I'd love to see you out there in Switzerland. You can come with me if you want. But if you're weird and you talk too much, I'm going to put my headphones on and just, you know, disconnect. So you go to Switzerland, they think we're crazy. They don't let their kids leave at 18. In fact, the greater majority of Swiss people don't even go to college. They learn a trade, become good at their trade, stay at home until the day they get married. And they usually get married and stay at home until like 28 to 30 years old. So when I say my baby girl's getting ready to leave for college, they're like, yo, you want to let a child in the world? That's crazy. In Switzerland, Sundays are pretty much shut down. You can't find a grocery store that's open. You can't find a mall that's open. All the stores on the main strip in Zurich, they're closed. They shut it down. I love that. I wish you did that in America, but we're trying to get one up on everybody and make a little extra dollar. I feel like if we shut Sundays down, God would more bless our Monday through Saturdays. So who decides what's right and wrong? Every nation is different. In Africa, my friend who is a co-partner in our ministry, Albert, he got married. And I said, you know, what's the custom in Africa, in Zimbabwe to get married? He goes, I have to ask the father. I said, well, we have to do that too. Like, I mean, you should do that. Like, is it okay if I'm married? And he goes, and then we have to buy the family cows. And at first I thought he was joking. I'm like, that's funny. He's like, no, I'm dead serious. I go, you're serious? Yeah, we have to buy them cows. You got to buy cows so that they'll say yes? Yeah. I said, how many cows? He goes, it's up to the dad. I said, are you kidding me right now? I'm not kidding you. I said, it could be one cow or 10 cows or 50 cows. He goes, yep, they decide how much their daughter's worth. I'm not kidding. This is cultural. This is what happens today. Who decides this stuff, man? And so what I'm saying is the cultural patterns are always changing and there's always a cost when you lower your standard let's move on the fourth one if you want to raise your expectations and your standard in life always finish what you've started I, mean, I know a lot of starters <laughs> 
I think people are good starters and bad finishers. I think that this, this has been heavy on my heart. I might preach on this next weekend. I'm not sure. Don't hold me to it. But I'm looking around looking for loyalty in today's day and age. I'm learning that people are only as loyal as what you can do for them. And people are good starters. They like to start things. You know, like some of us, we, we say, you know what, we're going to clean the house. And we start in the bedroom. And then we got some stuff that needs to go out in the garage and we take it to the garage. And then we get start doing the garage. And then there's some stuff in the garage. Oh, I should take that to the kitchen. Then we go to the kitchen. And then there's the kitchen. Oh, I need to take the trash out. We go outside, take the trash out. And they say, oh, man, I got to pick up that stuff. And then you've worked eight hours and done nothing. Right? It's kind of like what we do in life. Like we're good starters. I think I want to do this. And we start it. We never finish it. I think I want to do this. We start it. We never finish it. I want to do that. We start it. We never finish it. But God wants us to be finishers, people of our word, people that live to their commitments. But we live in a quitter generation. People quit on people. People quit on jobs. People quit on schools. I know parents, they put little Johnny and Jackie in 42 different schools looking for the right one for them. There is no right school. They're all messed up. They are. They're all messed up. And so... What are we teaching our kids? Don't let your child sign up for basketball and then quit in the middle of the season. Make them finish the season and then we'll discuss it. But don't make, because you're teaching a quitter. That's what you're doing. You're teaching people how to quit. Oh, when the going gets tough or when your emotions aren't in it anymore, I quit. What are they going to do when they're married? And the pizzazz wears off. You're going to say, well, I've been a quitter my whole life. School was hard, I dropped out. College was hard, I dropped out. I had 13 jobs and I hated the people, so I quit those jobs. And so God wants us to be finishers, that we're people of commitment. You know, I've learned that there's certain things that don't exist without commitment. There's no loyalty without commitment. There's no faithfulness without commitment. There's no dependability without commitment. Sacrifice, forgiveness. There's no patience without commitment. Listen, if we're going to be committed people, we need to think about on the front end what we're going to really commit to so that on the back end, we actually commit to it. So don't commit to a lot of things. Think of the things that you go, these are my priorities and I'm going to build my life around them. Because I feel like we are over committing in our lives today. And when you overcommit, you don't get anything done the way that you want to get things done. Be a person of your word. Be a person that sees things through. You make your commitments, and your commitments, they make you. What are your standards? What are your morals? What are your values? Stay committed to those. I, I met my wife, and uh, she was in that God-forsaken school, University of Arizona. Anybody ever heard of that place? And I say, God has left that entire city. That city, you know how they say it? it's like the armpit? of Arizona. That's the butt crack of Arizona. I mean, it's, I, Tucson is painful for me to go to, but I lived here and my, <laughs> my wife was down there and I was a pastor. I worked for a church. I was a worship leader and 
you know, when you fall in love and you're in this infatuation stage, it's really, they should call it like psychotic stage because you do things that you would never do when you're infatuated. You know, like men talk on the phone for like five hours. You know, it's like, that doesn't happen. It's a man, it's a dude. And so you're in this infatuated stage and you do things that just like, they're not things you would do. And, and, and so we're in this infatuated stage and she lived down there and I lived here. And so I would drive almost every day, I would drive to Tucson after work, almost, almost every day. And I would stay as late as I could Midnight, one, and then I'd drive home. She had a two-bedroom condo. But I never stayed because I wanted to be a person that was above reproach. And as a pastor of a church, does it look good if PTs spend the night at his girl's house all the time when they're not married? I know the world has a different standard. I understand that. I understand that the world has a standard that says you can live together, it's fine, have sex all you want, sleep with who you want, when you want. That's the world's standard. But God's standard is not that. So I said, you know what, my wife and I, we committed, we said, you know what, we're going to save sex until marriage. I want to tell you, it wasn't easy. It's not like my flesh didn't want to. But it's that my spirit wanted to. So how do we set ourselves up for success? How do we stay true to our commitment? Well, we got to be careful and not put ourselves in environments where we will fail in our standards and our commitments for one another. And so I would drive, man, there was times it was, I was so tired and on the way home from Tucson, I felt myself, she would talk to me all the way home. This is a good woman. She would talk to me all the way home. And there was times I felt like I'll be falling asleep but I wanted to do the right thing. I wanted to do the right thing. And I wanted to be proud that together we did the right thing. And we did it. We made it all the way to our wedding day. And I got to tell you, boy, wedding night was wow. We're so finicky. We're so fickle. We're so weak. We're so soft. Like, yeah, I'm committed to the no, I'm not. Like, come on, man. I don't know. I guess I was built in a different generation in a different town. But you stick to your commitments. You stick to your word. It's not that it's going to be easy. There's going to be things that come along and make you want to quit. You're going to get tired and it makes you want to quit. You're going to get distracted. It makes you want to quit. You're going to get irritated. Makes you want to quit. You're going to worry and be afraid. Makes you want to quit. You're going to be betrayed. It's going to make you want to quit. But commitment is not about it being easy. It's about finishing. Even if it means you go through seasons of hell. I want you to read Hebrews 12, 2 with me. We're going to close with this verse. It says, let us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, on whom our faith depends. From beginning to end, it says he did not give up because of the cross. Can you imagine? I love that verse. He did not give up because of the cross. Let me rephrase that. If you were God in a bod and you were being nailed to a cross and you knew you had the power to get off, would you get off the cross? I would. Oh, I for sure would. Like if I had the power, Roman soldiers nailing, you know, I'd be like, 
people, I'd turn the nails and shove them in their eyes and one in the temple, say, yo, this is how it's going down, boys. But Jesus, he finished, he stayed the course because he needed to pay the price for our sins to restore us back to a relationship with Father God. He did not give up because of the cross. 